The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop buttering your grits and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 533 with guest Phil Hack, recorded live Wednesday, March 3rd, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, in RTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now, the man who once again survived the Ides of March, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl. It's Richard. It's almost St. Paddy's Day. Almost. Hey, you know, I have some Irish friends, and I learned a little Gaelic. Did you? Yeah. So I know how to say uh, restrooms are reserved for customers only. <laughs> it goes like this. I'll read you a bit about your fucking drink right now. I'm going to fucking knock off your head and shut down your neck. Jeez. <laughs> I really can't say that, can I? No, you have to beep the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's Gaelic anyway. There so, you go. Let's get into Better Know Framework. Nice. Hey, do you know I'm going to Ireland this year? Yeah, you told me. Going on a pub tour with a bunch of musicians. You're going to drink some Irish whiskey. Well, I'm going to play some Irish songs, I think. And you're going to drink some Irish whiskey. And I'm going to drink some Irish whiskey. (laughs) You can't go to Ireland without drinking. There you go. So what are we doing today? So we're continuing our obsolete types in Microsoft assemblies in .NET 4, things that have been deprecated. And I'm looking today at system.xml.dll. Yep. The system XML, XML validating reader has been deprecated. It says, use the system XML XML reader created by XML reader create method using appropriate XML reader settings instead. They factorized it. Is that a word? factorized it. (laughs) It's like the Guinness factory. Arthur Guinness took out a 9,000-year lease, don't you know? (laughs) I think he did, too. He leased the Guinness factory for like 9,000 years. Are you allowed to do that? Yeah. Well, it's the length of the lease, right? There you go. Uh, System.xml.xsl.xsl transform. That class has been deprecated. Use system.xml.xsl.xsl compiled transform instead. Uh, System.xml schema. And this is the last one, I promise. System.xml.schema.xml schema collection. 
it says to use system.xml.schema.xml schema set for schema compilation and validation. Nice. There you go. That's a lot of XML. And that would be the obsolete types in system.xml. Hey, who's yakking at us now, Richard? And what do they want, by the way? <laughs> Let me see. What do the they all want? Where do they come from? The email says, Hi, Carl and Richard. Thank you both for many hours of listening pleasure I've received from .NET Rocks. I do have one problem I hope you can help me with. I love drinking coffee, but I keep burning my mouth when I pour the coffee directly from the coffee pot into my mouth. Oh, it's a shame. Also, when I stir sugar and cream directly into the community coffee pot, my coworkers get angry with me. Yeah. If only I had a ceramic-handled coffee holding device, hmm. I could avoid many of the painful burns, and I could add flavor only to the coffee I was going to drink. That, Do you know of such a device? It's not a bad idea. Let me think about that for a minute. Hmm. Hmm. P.S. I'd ask Microsoft for such a device, but I'm afraid of leaks. <laughs> All right. Up until this point, I was not going to give this guy a mug. We were only going to do one uh, coffee gag email. This is the one. Awesome. Tim Stewart gets a mug. The real way to get a mug is send us a suggestion, some concerns, a criticism about the show, some input on the show to .NET Rocks at Franklin's.net, and then we'll send you a mug. And speaking of mugs... Your mug and my mug are all over the Dev Connections launch site. As a matter of fact, they are. In fact, we've got a special registration code for .NET Rocks listeners. If you want to come to launch, and you want to come to launch, go to the devconnections.com website and register there. And in the promotion code, put in DNR, and you will get an additional discount on your uh, admission to the show. And you'll maybe bump into us because we're all over that show. We're going nuts. Yeah, I don't see our mugs on the site, though. They must have taken him down. Oh, maybe it's just my mug. Well, we have faces made for radio. That's there why. you go. And after launch, road trip time. Road trip. That's right. We're doing it again. We What's said we wouldn't, but we're doing it us? anyway. So we last time we went out on the road in an RV, it was 2005. Actually, that was the first time, too. We never learned. We never learned. So now it's 2010, and it's time to go back in the RV. We're going to start in Vegas. We're going to end in Atlanta. There's a whole bunch of cities in between. There'll be links up on our website at .netrocks.com to show you where we're going and when we're going to be there. But it starts right after launch and runs for three weeks. And uh, since we're bringing the food with us, we promise to have as little pizza as possible. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have pizza. But, you know, what happened last time, Richard? Yeah, we got pizza out you have pizza every night it gets old fast it's all fat and then they say oh take the rest of the pizza with you oh go on the road yeah <laughs> oh, take it on the road we'll eat nothing but pizza for 30 days yeah no it was not good but so, then we got into the once you get into the south you can get some barbecue and things got better yeah so we're gonna mix it up a little bit but you bet but uh should we talk about any of the Interesting things that we're going to do, like the celebrity... Uh, oh, should we let it slip? Yeah. Should we let so, it slip? Maybe about the celebrity guests, that the, the mystery guests? We are going to have a mystery guest at every site. So 15 shows, 15 different guests, people you know and love. You never know who's going to come out. We're going to do a .NET Rocks interview with them, talk about their role in Visual Studio. Yeah. Past and present and maybe even future. And then we go in, that's the end of the recorded show, but for folks that are there, then we're going to get to do our stuff. Right. Uh, a little visual studio, maybe some parallel task library, yeah. a little silver light, showing yeah. off all the great things that are inside Studio 2010. And if I don't miss my guest, then you play the guitar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can always have fun with that. You bet. 
Well, we don't really have a website yet, but uh, or at least at the at this recording time. But um, just to keep a watch on the .NET Rock site. You bet. We're coming to a town near you. Our guest today is none other than Mr. Phil Hack. And uh, Phil is a program manager with the ASP.NET team working on ASP.NET MVC. His uh, blog is at hacked.com, H-A-A-C-K-E-D. Welcome back, Phil. Hey, it's good to be back. Good to be back. Last time we spoke on the show, we were in some northern European country. Where we <laughs> <laughs> that was one of your finer moments, Phil, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, so I promise to try hard to be appropriate and uh, approach this episode with the seriousness and gravi- gravity that uh, it deserves. Right. <laughs> <laughs> At least for the first 30 seconds. So we're, we're here to talk about some meat and potatoes stuff here. Uh, ASP.NET MVC V2. Hey, Phil, am I delusional here? Or has MVC uptake been better than anybody expected? Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, I, I don't, it's hard for me to get real numbers on like what the uptake is, but I, I think in terms of, uh, I've been surprised at some of the large customers who hopefully I'll be able to talk about soon as they start to, uh, deploy and produce, you know, their own white papers and case studies. But we've had some, uh, really large customers, uh, take it and as well as, uh, some very cool startups, uh, who are using it. So, um, yeah, I don't have any concrete numbers, but I've just from an anecdotal experience. Yeah, I think the update's been quite good. I always had a sense that it was a technology that was going to receive lots of good critical acclaim. You know, folks that that are you know really serious about development and, and methodologies think that this were going to like it a lot, but that it would be challenging enough to actually build apps in that it may not be the first choice for a lot of folks. Yeah, I I think. You know, when a lot of people hear the the words model view controller and they, they you know MVC pattern, they start to think, oh, this is very highfalutin, you know, architecture level stuff. But it, it turns out that you know, the you know the project templates and the pattern that we've implemented for that, you know, MVC is just a small part of the actual ASP.NET MVC framework. Right. And so uh, we have a lot that guides people to do the right thing. And it turns out that I think for web development, for a lot of people. Uh, it's actually simpler if you started off as a web developer than, uh, you know, doing some other, uh, using some other framework, uh, like web forms, uh, where, you know, you're kind of used to the response and request. You know, if you came from a VB6 background, then it, it, it is a very, you know, jarring, uh, transition. But, uh, I think for a lot of web developers, like, you know, I, I started off as using classic ASP. Uh, I find the model pretty simple, and so what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of developers who, uh, you know, may not be the high-end pattern-oriented developers, but they're adopting MVC because they, uh, you know, once they get the pa- you know the, the pattern that we have, they they really like it and they find it, uh, you know, they find that they're closer to the markup and they they can understand what's going on under the hood a little better. So one of the things I was listening to your uh, Hanselman Hanselmanitz show. On uh, on this very subject, and one of the things that um, that uh, I noticed is that you guys were talking about dry D R Y, but never defined it as don't repeat yourself. So I'm like dry, dry, dry. Oh, <laughs> what the hell is dry? And usually Scott's very good about that, about making sure to expound on the acronyms. <laughs> well, well, let's talk about don't repeat yourself. This this uh, this whole idea of uh, write it once and that's it. Hmm. I mean, this is something that uh, MVC really allows you to do. 
Talk about separation of concerns. It's yeah, it's it's about trying to keep logic in one place where where it belongs, uh, so that you're not uh, repeating, uh, let's say view lo- you know, view logic within uh, your model or model logic within your view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there's also just general stuff like anytime you see yourself repeating a code block, you know, fact, you know, just refactor that into a method and then call that method, right? There's the simple yeah. dry, but then there's the more pat, uh, sort of con- separation of concerns dry where you're really focused on uh, having the logic in the right place, and and that's the one place that it lives. Yeah. And is it safe to say that? Um... Is it? I guess is it safe to say that uh, that REST is everywhere in uh, or RESTful architecture is everywhere in MVC. Uh, you know, I think REST is orthogonal to the MVC pattern, uh, but the the MVC framework certainly has REST-like elements. But mm-hmm. uh, I think for those who really subscribe to the Roy Fieldian definition of REST, they'll see that there's a lot of differences as well in the default templates. Yeah. However, one thing that we have on on our Coplex site uh, that was developed by uh, in partnership with the WCF team, uh, which is the uh, Windows Communication Foundation team, mm-hmm. uh, is a REST MVC uh, REST for MVC. So if you go into our Coplex uh, MVC 1.0 download uh, site and you, uh, which is aspnet.coplex.com. Uh, you'll see that there's a separate download there of uh, REST for MVC, and it's it's gotten pretty good reviews from a lot of the people who've tried it out. And so, uh, and, and in fact, some of the stuff that was in there has, uh, you know, we've looked at incorporating into MVC proper. But uh, that uh, framework allows you to build uh, more more true RESTful uh, sites or oh, an MVC site in a more RESTful manner. Right, and it, it's not like you're going to throw away. Any, you know, if you're, if you have web services, now you're just going to use MVC to write web services, I don't think. Yeah. So, uh, regarding web services versus MVC, I think what often, what I often see is that if you're building an app and you're writing like a little service specifically just for your app, you're not doing inner app communications, then it's a lot easier and quicker just to throw up a controller that returns some JSON or some XML, especially uh, JSON. Like I noticed that hmm. like when I'm writing simple apps and I'm using jQuery uh, to do asynchronous calls back to uh, the server to get some more data, I just throw up a JSON controller, okay, or I just throw up a controller that returns a JSON result, and boom, I'm done. I don't have to switch context. Where I would switch to uh, a full-blown service is when I need, uh, you know, to communicate, when I need external clients to communicate with my service and I need security boundaries and, right. and uh, you know, all that uh, extra stuff that goes into maintaining a, a real service. Yeah, most of the time, in my experience, most of the time in the business world, you're writing Windows-to-Windows services. You you don't need all that. So that's... that's you don't need all... Yeah, all, uh, uh, all the stuff that web services gives you. Yeah, a lot of times it's just an HTTP GET and you return a response and you're done, right? And yeah. then you, you know, the guy on the other end is just left to parse it. I noticed, I noticed that when it was integrating with various services, that every single service you integrate with is going to have a different thing, and so you know, you just have to keep deal with it all. Which I think can be kind of a problem on one level if if you get some sort of consensus then it might be easier to do these things. You know, one of the things they said right from the beginning with MVC was that this was going to be a very testable 
uh, development methodology. Are you seeing that? Or, or you think something we're going to have something in Studio 2010 that's going to be specific about really making good testing MVC infrastructure? Yeah, so one of the uh, pillars, so to speak, of uh, VS10 was uh, TDD workflows. And so right. there's actually, there's been some, um, we, I was part of a TDD working group and, uh, you know, we, and, uh, we looked at ways to, uh, make the TDD workflow flow more smoothly when you're using VS10. So one example is IntelliSense in VSOA is very aggressive. So if you were, uh, doing, writing a unit test first for a class that didn't exist, uh, it'd be very hard to type that class because if something was named similarly, you know, the IntelliSense would hijack it and, and, you know, spit out that class name. But you, within VS10, you can turn the IntelliSense into a mode where, uh, where if you type product and there's no product that exists, so you're typing, let's say, product P equals new product, and you don't yet have a product class, uh, a little smart tag will show up and you can just, uh, you know, right then generate a product class in your main project. So from your unit test. So little, little things like that, I think, uh, get rid of some of the friction of doing a TDD workflow. And I think with the MVC, you know, we, we've always had the, uh, when you instantiate an MVC project, we have this little test project dialogue that can hook up your unit test framework to your main project and take some of the chore out of uh, adding a unit test project to your main project. Um, that, I think, has been very well received. And, uh, you know, with the API, we've looked to uh, really focus on making uh, TDD as frictionless as we can. Can we jump into some of the meat of the uh, of the framework? Maybe start with uh, uh, strong typing for input helpers and link helpers? Sure. So one of the new features in MVC2 is uh, what we call strongly typed helpers. So they're the uh, expression-based um, versions of what you what we've had before, such as text... Whereas we had text box and, uh, let's say drop down list. Uh, now we have, uh, the equivalents where we use a naming convention text box four or, uh, text area four. And the argument you pass to text box four is a, uh, lambda expression. So I might, uh, that's based on the, mo- the current model. So if you have a, uh, strongly typed view page, you can use, uh, text box four and then you might pass like M such that, you know, with the little arrow, uh, M dot, uh, first name. Uh, let's say your, uh, model is of type product that, or, uh, user that has first name. And so what we'll do under the hood is we'll look at that expression and we'll actually look at the model and evaluate the first name property value. And that's going to be the value that we render out. Uh, not only that, now we have the ability to look at the, any metadata applied to that property, uh, via data annotations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, you might be able to control other things. Now, our text box helpers, currently, they don't do a whole lot with the metadata. But we have this separate set of strongly typed helpers called what we call um, templated helpers. And uh, uh, templated helpers sort of take the expression-based syntax to the next step, which is, uh, let's say, um, instead of, you know, me having to declare specifically which input I want to use, uh, do I want to use a text box here or a text area, I can just say, you know what, I want you to give me an editor for a product. So you might do, uh, you know, HTML.editor for uh, M such that M dot uh, product. Let's say, you know, M has a product property. 
So what happens there is that we actually uh, start look, look to see if there's a product.ascx uh, editor template. And if there is, we'll use that to render out an ed- a form for editing uh, the current product. And so that form might have, you know, fields for every single property or just a select group of properties. If there is no product.acx, so let's say you forgot to add the product template, we'll actually default to a, a, a default um, object template. And that object template simply uses reflection and a set of rules to uh, figure out which properties to show an editor for. And we try to avoid certain properties like, uh, um, you know, collection. We don't know how you're going to, we're not going to build a collection editor for that right, right in line. So we'll just show the, mostly the simple properties and allow you to edit it. So, uh, the template of helpers makes it very nice to build, um, Quick user interfaces, uh, sort of like a runtime scaffolding, but it also allows you to uh, maintain consistency. So one example might be that uh, you could register an editor for the date time type, and that editor might always have um, might use your uh, custom date picker, like some kind of JavaScript date picker that you have. So that every time you use editor four on any type and it has a property of date time, we'll use the date time edit, uh, date picker. So it, it, it's incorporating features that, uh, that those who've used dynamic data would be very uh, familiar with. They're very similar to uh, field templates in dynamic data. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because I've always thought dynamic data and MVC were a diametric opposing designs, right? MVC was supposed to be super light and very testable and clear areas concerned and dynamic data was going to be super easy to build stuff quickly and with less concern to that sort of thing. Yeah, so uh, they're they're not as diametrically opposed as people might realize. Uh, you know, we're all one team here and uh, what we do is a lot of uh, idea sharing between the two. So, for example, routing, which was originally developed for ASP.NET MVC, right. actually became its own feature and was incorporated in dynamic data. So, dynamic data has its own routes that are built on top of our, uh, on top of routing. Likewise, we took some of the ideas of dynamic data, but we sort of modify them for the MVC world. So, it's not quite as automatic as dynamic data. So, you, because we want to put the developer in control, um, mm. but you know, it, it allows you to do these things that are quite productive in MVC that still fit the MVC paradigm. Uh, in fact, the developer, uh, Brad Wilson, who worked, uh, actually worked on both dynamic data and on ASP.NET MVC. So that's why you see some of that, uh, uh, you know, cross pollination yeah. there. Areas is also, um, a new feature in MVC too. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, breaking up your app into different areas. Yeah, so the idea behind areas is that if you ha- have a large site, uh, let's say you have, um, you know, hundreds of controllers, uh, it may make more sense to break up your site into logical areas. And so, um, and this was a feature that was inspired by, uh, you know, areas in monorail as well as, uh, you know, features in other frameworks such as slices and merb. And, uh, at this point in time, these thing, uh, areas is, uh, really about grouping controllers and views. Uh, at some point in the future, we may try to expand on uh, being able to share areas between sites, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, what we do have, though, is that you can, um, uh, in MVC2 and, and in recent builds, like the RC that we released, uh, we have an, a dialog so you can add an area to a site, a right-click, add area, 
to make it easier to make use of areas. So when you add an area, uh, we create a root folder in your application called areas, and in there we have a folder that's named after your area. So, you know, the, one of the standard examples I use is forums. So I might right-click add area, type forums, and then we're going to add a forums area within your project. And then in there, you're going to have a models folder and a controllers folder yeah, uh, and, a, and a views folder. Now, do these map to namespaces, or are they just a ways to organize your project? So a little both. So they, they're a way to organize your project, uh, but they do uh, namespaces do uh, come into play in terms of how the routing works. And uh, I'm actually right, working on a blog post right now to kind of detail that because you know there's a lot to explain. But long story short, when uh, when you, we add a class called area registration in the area that you create, and then there you map your routes for that specific area. And those routes have a namespace associated with them. Uh, and by default, it's the namespace of the area registration type dot controllers. So that way the controllers, yeah, because in VS, you know, when you're, doing, especially with C sharp, when you're adding controllers into a, uh, a project, we by default use the namespace that's associated with the folder structure. Yeah. So uh, if you follow the, all these conventions and don't change it up, it all just works. And so when when you make a request for an area, we'll only look at controllers that belong to that area's namespace. Okay. So it's relative isolation. It's not really. Yeah, it's relative isolation. In fact, today I just posted a blog post that talks about one case where that isolation breaks down and one way to work around it. Uh, where uh, you can you can run into this uh, ambiguous controller um, exception, and uh, this is one of the things that you know we are looking at possible solutions for RTM, but uh, we may just hold it off for uh, V3 because at this point in time, the bar is very high very high for what we want to put into uh, MVC uh, to RTM. We generally like to avoid new features between an RC and an RTM. We really want to focus on bug fixes. And are you still doing this as a very public process, uh, more so than I think a lot of other Microsoft products? MVC seemed to have been really built out in the world rather than built at Microsoft and then shown when finished. Yeah, so we continue to do uh, source code releases with uh, uh, with uh, public public previews on CodePlex. Um, and uh, once we release MVC2, uh, the plan is to have it also released under the MSPL license, just as we did with MVC 1.0. Oh, and and uh, you know, hopefully moving forward, you know, I, we'd I'd really like to push uh, even more openness in the development process. Um, mm. You know, some of it is just uh, it, it's just a matter of time. I think it's inevitable that uh, you know we'll continue to open up the way we make we uh, make this project and write the software. So uh, it's something I'm personally very excited about. Yeah, it's been a quite a departure from, well, I think Scott Guthrie's team in general has been very much about uh, releasing inter- a lot of interim releases a lot faster. Yeah, and I think it's really helped the quality of uh, pro- products in terms of meeting customers' demands and expectations. Uh, I think when you go into a bunker, uh, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes you come out with something that nobody wants or, or just doesn't really address people's needs because they haven't had a chance to inform you about what they need or want. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I tend to like the more open style of development where, 
uh, we're getting constant feedback because uh, we've, you know, made some decisions that were, quite frankly, just wrong, and, and people let us know about it, and we were able to correct them um, in time. Whereas if you come out, you know, very late in the process, you might not have time to uh, adjust and, you know, make corrections to, to uh, ideas that you just got wrong. When it, and it also feels like when you do the big ships, I mean, obviously .NET 4.0 is imminent, and it's a big ship. You don't want to move yep. those dates. And I'm laughing because didn't they just move those dates? But, <laughs> you know, it's a big deal to move that around as opposed to when it's just the MVC team, you guys can take another week or two as necessary to get things right. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, I, I generally like to pick a date, stick to it, and cut if we need to. But, uh, right. yeah, if we have the flexibility to to you know we're a small team it's a small project we have this and we're releasing out of band so it's very easy for us with visual studio yeah, yeah turning that ship and changing that date those are big decisions those oh, are yeah. very high up i'm sure and you know we're talking about like delaying the burning of a software onto a dvd right whereas mvc we don't burn it to a dvd right uh except in this case with vs10 but i think <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, so, you, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot more process involved in that. You want to make sure you get it right. There's a lot more teams and projects and, and cu- customers dependent on something like VS10. So, uh, yeah, that's, you know, that's a, it's a big deal. But I, I think it's the, I personally think it's the right decision. You know, I always worry about, uh, you know, sticking too tightly to a date where you just ship the thing that doesn't make customers happy. And, uh, you know, there were perf problems that were uh, publicly acknowledged with VS10. And, uh, uh, you know, there's been a huge drive over here to fix uh, all these perf problems and, and uh, you know, address all these major perf problems. So, uh, and slipping is, you know, gives all these teams more time and uh, takes a little pressure off, um, but not much, but to really drive towards uh, these performance goals that they've set. It's it's all good stuff, and you know, changing those dates was not easy for anybody. I think, but it's I think it's going to make a better product in the end. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. If you're developing a new line of business application, then you probably tried the latest Silverlight version. Now you can achieve even greater results by combining the functionalities of Silverlight 4 Beta with the richness of third-party controls. Our friends at Telerik are the first vendors to offer native support for Silverlight 4 Beta in their RAD Controls for Silverlight 4 CTP suite. The Telerik controls let you tap into the framework's great potential, like the native right mouse click and more. Be sure that all 38 controls benefit from the latest and greatest in Silverlight 4, so you can start building compelling applications right away. Check out the product at Telerik.com Silverlight. And hey... Don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash Telerik. Another element that I see, I see coming in MVC2 that came from dynamic data is uh, is data annotations. Oh, yeah. So uh, maybe we've got to tell the whole story here because I don't yeah. think folks have really heard about it. Uh, so data annotations is actually something that's in uh, a namespace called system.componentmodel.dataannotations. So the idea that even though they started as part of dynamic data, this is yet another thing where 
Uh, we put them in a, name, a more general namespace because we really wanted these data annotations to not be tied to any particular front-end platform. So they're not specific to dynamic data. They're not specific to MVC. Uh, they're not specific to uh, RIA data services. I forget their new names. Is it WCF data RIA services or something WCF like that? WCF yeah. data services, yeah. No, they, yes. Uh, so the stuff that Brad Abrams is working on. <laughs> so, uh, but... <laughs> Uh, all these technologies use use data annotations, and so the idea behind it is that uh, you annotate your model, um, whether it's your view model or your actual model, with these data annotations, and then the data annotations sort of float to the different presentation layers, and each presentation layer, uh, you know, can invoke these annotations to do validation within the presentation layer. So, um, you know, one example that you see with MVC using them is that. Uh, let's say I, I'm using a view model and I put a required attribute and I put, you know, some other, uh, these validation attributes onto my view model and then I, uh, use a, uh, editor for template to edit the form. Uh, so when you try to submit that form, as long as you're, you know, using a model binder on, on, in your controller, uh, you'll get validation messages showing up. Nice. So we'll actually validate that. And with, uh, MVC2, if you, uh, Call a, a, a enable client validation, or uh, to uh, you can get that validation to occur in JavaScript. And, and what we do there is that we actually float up some uh, metadata. Uh, metadata, the metadata that's annotating your model, we float it up to the browser via this little bit of JSON, and uh, and we hook that in on the client side so that uh, we can actually do the validation on the client before we submit it to the server. And so it all. It all comes from your uh, model. So this is kind of another example of dry, where, uh, you know, with web forms uh, before dynamic data, you might have validated controls on your client that sort of, uh, but you also needed that same validation logic on your server. Right. Now you just have the validation logic in these uh, attributes on your model, and then we'll go and look at those and do the validation on the client. And it's, it seems like there's a lot of features here focused around client validation. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the new version of MVC. Like, you're just trying to take over more of that work for us so we don't have to do it by hand. Server validation, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's basically it. I mean, I've, I, I just remember working on Subtext, which is, uh, you know, an open source blog engine that, uh, you know, every time I had a form, I would uh, be doing this client validate, you know, or sorry, by client, I mean, like, I would do, add validator controls uh, and then I would also have, you know, validation in my business logic layer because I didn't want to, I wanted to make sure that if you're using this object, not from that form, but from some other form, that the same validation would apply. Now, some validation is very specific to the view you're on, right? Uh, like, for example, if you're doing a change password, you're going to have a password field and a confirm password. Your model is not going to have a confirm, uh, your actual domain model is probably not going to have a password, confirm password field on it. So in that case, uh, you know, with MVC, you typically use a view model, and you put validation attributes there that then um, validate th that uh, model specific to this screen, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, I personally got tired of all this repetition of validation logic. So anything we can do to make it simpler so that you can focus on, um, you know, these declarative validation rules on your model and have them automatically float on the client side, I think will uh, hopefully make people a lot more productive when they're building these UIs that use uh, that require validation. 
Yeah, anytime you can eliminate re- ownership of repetitive code, our lives are better. Yeah. Yeah. Do we talk about uh, the new providers, uh, metadata metadata providers? Yeah, so there's a... Uh, so when I mentioned data annotations and how the validation floats up from the data annotations, I sort of left out a, a, an important point, which was that uh, it, the validation framework is actually, and the client validation is actually built on this concept of model metadata providers and, and model validation providers. And what that is that we've abstracted um, where the metadata or the validation information comes from. So uh, by default, we support this data annotations model validation provider or whatever we call it. And, uh, you know, if you use data annotations on your model, we'll, we'll, we know what to do with it. But it's quite possible to write your own uh, model validation providers and uh, provide validation from alternate sources. So, for example, if you're, very, if you're really into the patterns and practices uh, uh, validation application block, they have their own set of attributes that are not data annotations. And if you want to use those in your MVC app and have our client validation work against it and our model binder work against it, uh, Brad Wilson, again, yeah, like I, I've, I've told him that I have to mention him in every podcast I ever do. <laughs> uh, he, he wrote a, blo- a really great blog post about uh, how, to, uh, ri- how to build a model validation provider for the application, a validation application block. Uh, let's say you want to store your validation rules in a database, uh, or you know maybe you have a rules engine or so, of some such. You can then write, uh, you can extend a, a particular class, and you can have your validation come from the database and and uh, have no attributes involved at all. So it gives you a lot of flexibility on how you want to supply these validation rules to the uh, uh, to the user interface. Uh, the other side of it is the model metadata providers, which is uh, a way of um, providing the metadata to templated helpers and and, and such. So uh, I mentioned, like for example, if you have a um, if you have a model and you have a property and you have a display name um, attribute on there, and you you can change the label using the display name attribute that will show when we use the templated helpers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, instead of like, you know, product name, you might change the display name to be product space name, you know, simple things like that. Uh, So um, that metadata, you know, in, you know, gets floated up to the templated helpers and they read that metadata and then they do whatever they do, whatever they respond to the metadata. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. So that metadata, you also have control over because, uh, once again, uh, while our default implementation uses data annotations, uh, you can write your own model metadata provider to, um, prov- you know, provide a, a whole assortment of metadata from any source you want. And our templated helpers uh, only goes to the abstraction. They don't directly go to the, da- the attributes. Uh, so, um, you know, by going through this abstraction, we've really separated how we get the model metadata uh, yeah, the metadata, and we just, uh, you know, leave that up to you. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's two things that I generally don't associate with each other. One is uh, web, you know, ASP.NET programming, and the other is asynchronous programming. Now, I know that, I know obviously, if you're writing websites, they're, they're naturally asynchronous. When you get control, you're you're working on another thread. But within your own code, you don't usually think of writing asynchronous code. I mean, yes, you can for certain things, but I think the majority of people uh, 
out there. Uh, don't don't rush up brush up against that. What um, you have some new features in uh, in MVC two for this with controller actions, I believe. Uh, so yes, we've introduced the concept of asynchronous controllers and the asynchronous controller actions. Uh, for you know a lot of apps, I think it's you know you can pretty much write controllers as if they're single threaded and and not really worry about about it because a controller action corresponds to a single incoming request. However, there are cases where uh, let's say you're calling some external service. Um, like a, an external web service, and that web service might take, you know, two seconds to respond, you know, which is fairly, you know, maybe may that maybe one second even, right? So that's uh, one thousand milliseconds of your thread being blocked and just sitting there doing nothing. So a thread from the ASP.NET thread pool. So for a real high scale website, that at that point, if you see that you know you have all these threads that are just sitting there idle um, and not being returned to the thread pool, uh, you might look at the asynchronous programming model that we've introduced. And what that allows you to do is you have uh, this uh, in begin action method and the end action method. I'm blanking on the actual naming convention, but they're both named after your actions. So if you had index. You, if you had index, you would also have index completed, mm. and then within the index action, you would uh, you know have your setup code, and then you'd have your uh, you know invoke web service, and we have this event eventing model that we do. So uh, you would then subscribe the end action. The end action method gets subscribed to uh, the on complete event of the of the asynchronous you know uh, method that you're calling. And so then uh, when you call that asynchronous method, like the web service, the thread that's uh, executing that action method actually gets returned to the app pool and uh, it can go and service other requests. And now, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, now you're just waiting for your IO completion port uh, to, you know, get the response. And then uh, once the response comes back from that web service, another thread from the thread pool, you know, quite possibly the same thread, but, you know, Quite possibly, an, often another thread will then um, come back in and start executing the completed method of your action method, and um, and then finish that processing that request, and then returns the view to the user. So um, it, the the programming model gets a l- is a little more complicated if you're not familiar with with it. But um, once you get used to it, uh, it allows you to build uh, very scalable sites when you're calling external services quite often. So if you're not calling any external services, for the most part, you can completely ignore asynchronous controllers. Yeah, I was going to say that if you if you you have to know that you're that those seconds are actually you're doing something while you're waiting. Um, you know what is there a possibility that you could exit your thread or exit your uh, request before that thing comes through before the return? Uh, you know, before the completed happens. So uh, I I don't know if we built it. I can't remember if we built it in the framework or. But we I I know we definitely have an example in MVC features where you can put an attribute on your asynchronous action that says what your timeout should be. So uh, we can do timeouts on that. Uh, for the most cool. part, as soon as you invoke that asynchronous web service, you are releasing that thread back to the thread pool. So you're you don't need to be doing any work yourself. Oh, in your I see. Method. So it's sort of like uh, sort of like go away here, come back here. So you pick yeah, exactly. up where you left off in, in, in the completed. I see. Yeah, so it, it's like, okay, I'm going to initiate this request, and I'm going to call this, uh, I'm going to send this message to this web service, 
And while I wait for the, instead of sitting here waiting for the message to come back, I'm just going to throw the thread back. You know, now there's no threads executing that action method. Yeah, it's not that your request is going to be more performant for the user. It's that you're going to release the thread back to the pool so that it can perform for other users. Exactly, exactly. Because under high load, this is what we run out of, right? You eventually run out of threads per core. Oh, yeah. And I I just dealt with an architecture like this for a customer where we were literally adding virtualized servers because we just needed more threads. Well, isn't it true that ASP.NET only only uses a finite, a small number of threads? I'm not not sure what it is now, but it used to be like 11 or something like that back in the day. I think it used to be somewhere around 30 per processor. I think with the ASP.NET 3.5, SP1, it was up to 1,000. Yeah, they, um, they've really? changed the rules in 4.0, too, where they're just not restricting that way anymore. They're Wait a dealing with it a different way. Up to 1,000 per processor or total? 1,000 uh, per processor, I believe. Yeah. Wow. I, can't, I can't remember the exact numbers. I'd have to look them up. But, yeah, and, and that's all configurable in machine.config as well. Wow. But it's also this belief that actually governing per th- thread per core is a mistake, that there are better ways to manage these things. Yeah. Because yeah. the issue when you get into multiple threads here is that that the context switch takes time, and so suddenly context right. switch, which used to take you know a fraction of one percent of your total processor time, becomes ten percent, twenty percent. It's spending more time bonking context than doing work. Right, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I also think processes have changed because we've gone multi-core. We're way better at context switching than we used to be, so that it's just not as much an issue as it used to be. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. I'm sorry, this is one of those crazy problems that I've just been immersed in for the past few months. (laughs) And and immediately I'm like, I'm looking at these features and thinking, wow, I want to build a distributed MVC infrastructure. Because right now I'm doing it with WCF. Uh And maybe, you know, it's just the idea of, I always think of MVC as this sort of self-contained thing where all of the different pieces work together in a machine. But I I could see pushing those asynchronous controller actions back on on a separate machine that would then be calling out to them. We, we were dealing with a context where one request needed six different web services calls from different providers. And so mm-hmm. making those asynchronous, they actually all fire at once and then come in in whatever order they come in. And once they're completed, you've got to, you can compose the page. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, in fact that you can, uh, that's with the asynchronous controllers, you can invoke multiple actions. And once they're all completed, uh, the synchronization manager then calls your end method. So right. uh, it works pretty much in the similar convention. I mean, it, it all goes to show that anytime you're dealing with performance and scale, it, you, you have to measure your situation. I mean, if your web service is taking under, you know, yeah, 10 milliseconds, then you might be better off not uh, you know, going async on that, right? Because of the if cost. If your web service is taking less than 10 milliseconds, I don't think it's a web service. I think it's magic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. It could be returning a cache response. I mean, who knows? It could be on the yeah. same subnet. And speaking of caching, <laughs> <laughs> on that note, there are some new features uh, in caching. Are there not? No. No. <laughs> no. I really thought. Sorry, did he did he do Got that for wires. the gag potential, or is it really no new features to cache? My wires. Yeah, no. There's. Uh, I mean, the only semi-related feature to caching is that 
We used to have render render action, which is a new feature of MVC2. We used to have a version of that in uh, MVC Futures. And that version had a bug where if you were calling uh, render action on an action that had output cache attribute, it would cache the whole page. Well, we fixed that bug, but we haven't really added any new caching features. Uh, you might have seen me write about this concept of donut caching and substitution caching. Uh, but so currently donut, donut caching? Uh, yeah, donut caching is a feature in, in regular ASP.NET where you want to cache everything except for small pieces of page. Right. Uh, piece of the page. And then there's donut hole caching, which is you want to only cache the hole and not the rest of the page. Right. Uh, so, uh, um, <laughs> Speaking I've of never heard it called that before. I thought <laughs> it was called page said. fragment caching, but okay. Donut caching. I just set myself up with the donut hole comment. <laughs> I know where all mine just <laughs> oh, no, went. No. So maybe I got my wires crossed with the caching, but you know, it, it does bring up another point, which is how um, many of the new features of ASP.NET MVC 2 do you see that could also be features of ASP.NET? Because we've seen, as with routing, we've seen features that started out in MVC, the MVC framework, migrate over to you know, to everyone who doesn't necessarily have the framework? Uh, the w- one feature that possibly could be backported uh, to, uh, sideported to ASP.NET Web Forms would be uh, the concept of areas. And uh, yeah. in yeah. fact, I think with Web Forms, it might be in some ways easier because, um, you know, pages are, and controls are self-contained. So this concept of you know, composing a site, and in many cases that may already be a solved problem with some of the work that PMP has done with uh, composable web form apps. Um, other than that, I, I don't see a whole lot uh, that uh, that I could see web forms adopting. I, I think in many yeah. cases what I'm seeing more of is uh, you know hybrid apps where um, you know like. To go back to the subtext example, uh, that was originally written as web forms, and to do a wholesale conversion to MVC, that's a huge amount of work. So one thing I've done is that I've, I've added the MVC infrastructure to the existing project, and I've added my own routes, which route both to controllers and to pages, uh, You know, much like ASP.NET 4 introduces page routing. And uh, from that, that enables me to do things like where I, I'm building a, a web form interface, but let's say I have a link uh, that's going to uh, do some AJAX stuff. I might just have that link post to a controller action, which returns some JSON, and mm-hmm. then I just use some you know old school JavaScript or, you know, or jQuery on the client to manipulate the UI. So I have this uh, nice interplay between uh, web forms and MVC going on. Uh, I, I, I'd like to eventually port the whole thing, but I'm not in a big hurry to because a it all works right now, right. Uh, for the most part, and uh, and uh, you know there's there's not a huge demand for me to do that right away. But in the meanwhile, I can still gain the benefits of MVC in this existing Web Forms app. Phil. Uh, how are you feeling about the third-party market around MVC? I remember when MVC was first talked about, the whole thing was about getting rid of controls, and like this was going to be an uh, an environment that third parties wouldn't have anywhere to play in. But that seems to have changed. Yeah, so I think you know the Hulk idea of getting rid of controls is kind of interesting because I think 
when you think of the traditional server controls of ASP.NET yes. uh, and building a server control market for MVC, I feel like it's kind of almost like misdirected, right? Because where I really see controls coming into play is where uh, you have a, a sort of a JavaScript UI widget that you just use in MVC because um, a lot of these JavaScript UIs are a lot easier, uh, widgets are a lot easier to use with MVC. Uh, to give you a, a really good example, a while back I wrote this blog post on J, uh, jQuery Grid or JQ Grid. Uh, this is a really nice jQuery Grid control. You just you know, you know write a, a little snippet of jQuery code and point it to some element, and then uh, you point it to um, some source URL that's going to give you JSON data, and it creates this nice-looking grid. And when I was reading through the docs uh, for jQuery, Grid, uh, you have to um, return JSON in a particular format, and they had the spec for what the the JSON uh, should look like. Then they had sample PHP code for how to produce that. And uh, when I looked at that code, I thought, "Oh my god!" I mean, like I'm not a PHP developer, so you know, maybe if I was, it wouldn't look so bad. But I did do classic ASP, and I'm sure classic ASP would look just as, very similar. It looked like somebody barfed a bunch of uh, characters onto the page, right, to generate that. So uh, I, but uh, with uh, an MVC action method returning a JSON result, I was able to use uh, nice anonymous objects to build up, uh, you know, the, the JSON object, and then I just returned JSON result on that anonymous object. And the beauty of it was when you looked at the the action method code to return that JSON, and you saw like the structure of my anonymous object. It looked very, very similar to the spec for what JSON they want to return. And you can go to my blog post and you can see what I'm talking about there. And so that was one area where I felt, you know, this is a real nice experience. This JSON looks just like, or this object, look, this code looks just like the spec that they gave for what the JSON should look like. And so I, I think there's going to be this market where people are, are uh, packaging these uh, J, JSON jQuery or, or uh, you know, Dojo or whatever JavaScript widgets with a controller that the widget talks to. And so I think you'll see a lot of that. There's also, um, you know, an emerging market of uh, controls, uh, Telerik helper methods, or uh, helper methods like the Telerik stuff where, you know, they write extension methods to the HTML helper class, uh, property, uh, class, sorry, uh, which you get in view, so you can do HTML dot you know Teller Grid. I don't know if it's named that, but you know let's pretend it is. So you do HTML dot Teller Grid and uh, you know pass in a bunch of settings, and then uh, it renders all the markup and script tags for you to uh, to get a nice you know Ajaxy grid. So I think you know people are realizing that you're not going to have these controls where. You just have this one blob of code, and it does everything for you. It does the view, it does the model, it does the controller interactions, because that's really not uh, going to fit well with the MVC model. What you have is you have this front-end code, and you have this back-end code, and you can you know package them up in different ways. And, and we'll be, hopefully, in MVC 3, we'll look at ways to you know make these kind of redistributable pieces of functionality uh, even easier. But uh, we're seeing a lot of efforts out there in the open source community as well uh, already taking these kind of things on. And one thing that's really helped that is uh, one of the other new feature of MVC2 that I haven't talked about yet is uh, render action, which allows you to call an action method from within the view. So I could see that being another avenue where um, people might write these controllers that you can then just call render action to. You just add their DLL, call render 
action and render out you know their thing in line to your page. That's awesome. Hey, Phil, mm-hmm. when is SharePoint going to migrate to MVC? <laughs> <laughs> There's this really cool tag called an iframe, and uh, <laughs> you can... <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> It'll fix everything. No, really, man. Uh, I have no idea, to be honest. I mean, that's a big product, and I can't imagine them migrating willy-nilly to MVC anytime soon. Yeah, what would be really interesting is I'm sure they expose a lot of little services, AJAX services, for SharePoint itself, and those would be the kind of things I could see being exposed as, like, MVC controllers. So maybe not yeah. the you you know the initial UI rendering, but, like, if you do some AJAXy thing and you just need to get, like, a list... Uh, return as JSON to the browser, you know, that I could see happening. But uh, I haven't talked to those guys about that yet. And, uh, I don't even know where to begin there. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, as humorous as that might be, maybe I'm just throwing a silly one out there. MVC to me strikes me as exactly the tool for the large scale app like this, something that's got long life where maintainability is going to be key. Mm hmm. Not every application mm-hmm. is like that. Yeah, and I don't know the SharePoint codebase well enough to know if when you already have a long-lived app, you know, how hard would it be to migrate to MVC? I mean, it's a very different paradigm. I mean, would yeah. you have to start over? Uh, and plus, you have the backwards compat concerns for right. people who are already building on SharePoint. Uh, I think any move to MVC would be a very long-term effort, and you'd have to sort of justify the cost and the, the rationale for doing it. What I could see happening and what I've seen with other uh, you know, Microsoft properties is they've taken the sort of uh, incremental migration approach where right. certain new features are built using MVC, but they keep the, the existing stuff in web forms. And, and, you know, we're not trying to, you know, personally, I'm not trying to get people to move from web forms to MVC. I mean, if you're happy with web forms, you know, we fully support web forms. We'll continue to support it. And, uh, you know, we see it as uh, on equal footing with MVC. They're, they're kind of like siblings, right? You don't really love one more than the other, though. You know, I personally love one of them more than the other, but that's just me. <laughs> that's my personal opinion. Like your siblings, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, like my, I have two kids and, you know, my actual kids, I love them equally, but... Uh, 1.0 and 2.0. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They're not version, you know, because they're not revertible. They're not really versions. All right, I got a, I got a Twitter question for you, or a question from Twitter. What is the killer reason for me to upgrade my freshly installed ASP.NET MVC 1.0 website to MVC 2.0? Ah, good question. Well, one, there's a lot of cool features in MVC 2 that we've already talked about in this podcast, and if any of those make sense to or could give you productivity. I mean, I imagine for a lot of people, client validation is going to be a big draw. Render action um, actually works now much better than the one that we've had in MVC Futures. Um, areas, you know, if you're going to compose your site into uh, different logical areas, I think areas is really great. There's a lot of good reasons, I think, there. One of the, one of the things that makes it easy to choose to upgrade is that uh, MVC 2 is you know, still built on MVC 1. It's incremental. There's very few breaking changes. There's one or two um, that we made for uh, non-mainline scenarios where if you're doing some hardcore extensibility, 
we did do a, a couple breaking changes, but they're very easy to uh, fix. So uh, for the most part, MVC2 is a lot like MVC1, but with more. Um, I mean, it runs on the same uh, runtime. So uh, we targeted .NET 3.5 SP1 with MVC2. So uh, it's not like you'll have to go upgrade your runtime unless you're not running with SP1, in which case I, I would suggest you go install it. Uh, the other thing with MVC2 is we've we've uh, had a whole um, uh, phase where we actually spend a lot of time, you know, optimizing uh, key performance areas. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of good goodness in MVC2 that uh, I think people will appeal to people. Uh, for some people, it'll be strongly typed helpers and being able to use expressions and get that benefit of IntelliSense. Um, yeah. Uh, All right. Cool. Because I said Easy. so. And uh, MVC3 will be out in a couple more months? Yeah. In fact, we were thinking uh, we'd <laughs> wait a week and then uh, deploy MVC3 and then uh, better start planning for MVC4. Here's one from Don Felker. When will Spark be the default view engine? Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that I don't know. Uh, but I am working, you know, trying to work with a Spark author uh, who's now a Microsoft employee uh, who's very busy, kept very busy as a Microsoft employee, we're trying to make the experience of using Spark and MVC a lot easier and a lot better. Um, I think there's some... One of the problems we have with that we've run into with Spark is that the, for whatever reasons, it's very hard to make the uh, nice IntelliSense work for the, both the HTML and the code nuggets at the same time. Like, you can get one, you can get the other... But to get them both to work, and I think it's just, you know, I think it's really a problem with the Visual Studio extensibility model. And I don't know if that extensibility model gets fixed in ASP.NET or VS10, so I'd have to go do some digging. But I was hoping to get some help from, you know, VS people to figure out how we can make that work. Uh, but as you can imagine, they're very busy on improving the performance of VS10. But uh, um, it's something I, like it's something I'd like to put in to MVC in a more first-class manner. I don't know if I would uh, replace the web form view engine at this point with that, uh, but yeah, it's, it's something I'd like to see. I think I think the you know a lot of people are very familiar and comfortable with the web form view engine, so it'd be kind of dramatic to just switch it. But um, I mean, I'd love to see it in the box or something equivalent to being in the box at some point. It probably won't happen with MVC two, but. Uh, we're going to try to figure out ways to make it a lot easier and a lot more discoverable to use Spark. I'm a big fan of the Spark View Engine. I really like it, and I think uh, I think it's definitely worth checking out if uh, you haven't tried it yet. Very cool. Well, we're just about out of time, Phil. Is there any last-minute uh, advice you want to give us or, or shout-outs, resources, other than the standard places? <laughs> the standard shout-outs, resources? Uh Oh man, you you ask me this every time, and I never have a good answer at the top of my head. So I usually say something like this to stall while I try to think of something. Uh, Read any good no, books I mean, on your Kindle lately, or? <laughs> uh, so uh, I mean, as you, as you probably know, uh, Scott Hanselman, Scott Guthrie, and Rob Connor and I have a book out there called The Professional ASP.NET MVC 1.0 by Rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard very good things about Steve Sanderson's book uh, on MVC. I highly uh, recommend checking that out. I, ha- I haven't read his book yet, but uh, Scott Guthrie gave it a very glowing uh, recommendation. 
Uh, and of course, there's the usual, you know, set of blogs uh, to read, like mine, uh, uh, Scott Guthrie's, of course, and uh, Ace on his side. Uh, n- n- other than that, uh, nothing in particular. Other than uh, you know, keep the feedback coming, and uh, you know, now we're starting to plan. Um, I've been thinking a lot about what MVC3 is going to hold. So, if you have that killer idea, you know, do let us know. Awesome. Phil, thanks a lot. It's been very informative. Yeah, my pleasure. It's always a fun time to talk to you guys. Absolutely. And we'll see you next time. .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 